welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author, Rod Bennett, the book These Twelve, The Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes, published by our friends over at Catholic Answers, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. And great to see you again, Rod. You too, Doug. It's Bennett. always a pleasure. Absolutely. You were on with Father Mitch a while back, and it's been years since we've saw, seen each other as well. Uh, you do tend to focus on early church things. Why? I think that's become my speciality. That's what people expect from me, I think. <laughs> is it really? Okay. So let me ask you this. This is a tough nut to crack. These 12, the gospel through the eyes of the apostles. How do you get inside the apostles' heads and see the world through their eyes? You talk about in the book about having a vivid imagination. So in using that, how do you do that and how do you avoid getting in trouble? Yeah, that's the key to the thing, is how to uh, extrapolate and speculate without getting too far afield from the facts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you do have to do it. Of necessity, you must do it, because of the twelve apostles, uh, six of them are just names on the list, mm -hmm. as far as Scripture is concerned. We don't uh, know anything about them beyond their names, and even of the others, uh, they're just one or two incidents that we have in the lives of, of one or two of the others. So uh, right. you, you have to put the pieces together from uh, extra biblical sources and uh, the putting of the pieces together of necessity involves a little bit of uh, speculation. Well, you talked right from the beginning, what was it like to become one of the 12 apostles? And it's interesting too because part of the point you're making is we look back at it knowing how things worked out and we, we, we view the, these situations in Scripture that way. These young men, these men, were going through it as it happened. They didn't know how it was going to turn out, and quite honestly, their expectations of how things were supposed to be were totally different in reality. Or at least I would say that, that their expectations were kind of all over the map. Okay. The, the old, they were very well versed in the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and ex I believe ardently expected His arrival and were looking for it. But uh, one of the things we bring out is that if you just take the vast bulk of Messianic prophecy that's in the Old Testament, it's very difficult to put all that together in a way that makes any kind of sense. Right. And, uh, you know, I suppose professors and scholars will tell you that no Old Testament prophecy really makes sense until you've seen it fulfilled. Right. And the, uh, that's really true in this regard because there's about four different types of Messiah that, that we... Well, that's the point, yeah, and yeah, depending, but, I, I guess, how, how, what you focus on, right? Right, or... Is he the warrior, or the, but how is he the Prince of Peace and the Wonderful exact, Counselor? Exactly right, right. And, and he's all of those things. We know that now, but it was difficult to, to square it all and make any kind of a coherent picture before he actually arrived. So that's why one of the biggest aspects of God's work for the apostles were for them to watch him in action mm -hmm. and put those pieces together for for the church now you had a you, you you talk about in the beginning of the book about the we believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church you say let's pass over catholic for time being focus on the whole apostolic which is really what the book is is about and you tell a story about you being with a bright baptist seminarian and asking him about in a sense during the early church and he said oh the apostles were nothing no special role at all other than allowing themselves to become the medium by which God wrote the New Testament. Now, sometimes I heard that applied to Mary in the past, certainly, the same yeah, idea. Yeah. I didn't realize they had the same view necessarily of the apostles, or is this maybe a unique view? Well, it, 
you know, it's funny, even Catholics who you would think they know as a kind of a truism that the church is apostolic. I mean, they, we say it every time we go to Mass in the Creed. Uh, but what does that mean? What does it mean for it to be part of the nature of the church to be apostolic? Mm -hmm. that, does, that means more than just we talk about the apostles here. Mm -hmm. We have a role for the apostles here and we believe that that role was given to them by God. So that even somebody who, a lifelong Catholic who's used to the idea, uh, needs to think it through a little more carefully. You say for evangelicals like my friend, any attempt to assign a group of mere mortals like ourselves to such a central role in the economy of faith has always set off alarm bells. Why? You know, I, I speculate that, uh, you know, coming right out of the great wars of religion that happened in the 17th century, one of the most horrible times in European history, uh, where the whole world seemed to be losing its mind. Uh, there was this sense of having seen Christianity explode into a hundred different denominations. And the roots of evangelicalism are in those groups that said, look, mm -hmm. we just want to go to the Bible, it's me and the Bible, and that's all I trust. And, I'm, and the, the idea that we cut out the middleman, or as the restaurants used to have the sign that said, uh, untouched by human hands, mm -hmm. food untouched by human hands. I think the evangelical instinct is to cut sinful, disappointing human beings out of the loop. And so, you, yes, we can trust Jesus. He's God in the flesh. But uh, as far as any human uh, go-betweens, we want to cut that down to a minimum. And that seems to be the instinct that leads them to... Because uh, they assigned, in a sense, all the problems that were going on in the religious wars were a function of uh, some hierarchical control going exactly. on. Exactly. Okay. It's a power struggle, et cetera, okay. et cetera. So. Now, you talk about, right at the beginning, you talk about Nathaniel, you talk about the fig tree, you talk about Nathaniel's chosen vocation was heavily focused on thou shalt and thou shalt nots of Jewish life. Your, your sense is he was studying to be a Pharisee. There's, a, there's an old tradition that he was actually studying to be a scribe, which oh, was sort scribe, of one right. of the canon right. lawyers right. of right. the right. Uh, Hebrew uh, synagogue. And uh, so there's very good reason they to think... They tended to be Sadducees too, right? That's, that's so, true, In which yeah. case he wouldn't have believed in an afterlife, at least if he was studying that. Right, right? He, but general. he would have been very, very familiar with all of the Messianic passages. And uh, that's uh, one, why it's a good reason, well, it was one of my reasons for uh, using Nathaniel as a sort of audience identification figure, somebody to walk through the story with. I introduce him there at the beginning and then we see the whole, he was a bit of an outsider, so we see the story through his it's eyes. It's interesting too because, you know, and you kind of talk about later in the book that in a sense of the Essenes kind of fall away, you know, the connection with John the Baptist, but they kind of fall away, the scribes fall away, and really the church that we see today, the synagogue church, of later Judaism really comes out of the Pharisee world, right? That, that's right. The only, uh, the only form of Judaism that survives the destruction of Jerusalem is the remnant that's left over from Phariseeism. So all of today's modern Judaism is, descends from rabbinical Talmudism is what we call it Why do you think they now. got such a, a, why do they have such a bad reputation? Why is that such a negative to be accused of? Even later today, you know, somebody who might be seen as being overly conservative because of being Pharisaical. Right, yeah. It is true that at the time, it's interesting, the Pharisees were the Orthodox party. Right. In fact, Jesus goes, comes pretty close to putting his stamp of approval on their leadership. Mm -hmm. He says, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, therefore you must do everything they tell you. So uh, that's, yes, that's the rest of the story. <laughs> right, right. But, and that, that's the key to the whole thing. Right. Uh, they had orthodoxy, but not orthopraxis. Right. 
he spends the rest of his time talking about the degraded state of religion that had come about at that time. An orthodoxy without uh, justice, mercy, kindness, and he calls them hypocrites. He says that they put heavy burdens on men's shoulders but won't touch, the, right. touch them with their little finger. Uh, in other words, they were teaching orthodox religion but they were not keeping it themselves and they were hypocrites. Yeah, using a lot of yeah. legalisms to get around the, well, the spirit that, of the law. Well, more than right? that, he yeah. actually accuses them of being evildoers. So yeah. there's, the, there's a sense that they were uh, morally uh, bankrupt, that right. they had uh, kept an ossified orthodoxy and nevertheless they were uh, sowing their wild right. oats behind the scenes. Let me ask you this. One of the, one of the takeaways I, I got from this as well was the idea of reinforcing at least from your perspective, how so many of the apostles actually either knew each other or were connected in maybe more ways than we think. There's a great deal of, well, the saints and the fathers spend a great deal of time trying to figure out the family connections between the apostles. And if you were to take literally and accept all of the various identifications you'd made, it's almost like one big extended family. There's hardly three men in it that aren't related to the others in some way or to the Blessed Virgin. So uh, now modern scholarship has caused, uh, called some of that into question, but uh, in doing so they haven't offered an alternate uh, way of squaring all of the different things that seem to suggest family connections. So uh, we, can't be, uh, we can't be dogmatic about some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. In fact, even one of the simpler bits of it, uh, how many people don't know that uh, Santa Elizabeth was Mary's cousin? And yet the scripture doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. It says that she was her female kinswoman. Right. The actual word doesn't say cousin. She could have been her aunt or, or even a grandmother or something. But, you know, that's not, you know. Right. But the point is the word doesn't specify. So that suggests the kind of difficulties there are in squaring it all together. But yeah, uh, the, the, some of our greatest saints and doctors have uh, put those pieces together in ways that seem to suggest one big royal family, as it were. Well, in the royal family, to dr drive right into chapter two, though the names of the lucky couple aren't recorded, this is Cana, of course, um, there are good reasons to believe that either the bride or the groom was a close relative of Mary's. Why? Right, yeah. Uh, there are various uh, things that are suggested by the text that suggest that they must have been. And also, it's Fulton, Bishop Fulton Sheen that uh, that spells a lot of this out in his book about Mary, uh, The World's First Love. He talks about right. uh, uh, the fact that Mary must have been the hostess at the Cana wedding, which is was normal for uh, a, a relative of the bride and groom, or at least the bride, to be involved in, because she is so obviously in charge of the uh, the foodstuffs, the right. uh, the wine, and all they the rest. Of right it. away. Yeah, they and that she is the one who takes charge of solving the problem and all Which the rest. We of might it. have yeah. thought, well, they're coming to her because they don't want to ask Jesus directly to fix the problem, but that wasn't the case. No, at all. I think it was the mother's right. traditional role to make the arrangements. Right. Also, you talk about the idea that that some of the names Andrew, Simon, James, John, the first four from Bethsaida, and you even make the point that. Uh, Andrew and Philip, in fact, are Hebrew names, but not Greek ones. W would that make one think, well, these must be, you know, these aren't their real names. They were made up later because they're Greek. Actually, no. Uh, in fact, but it does suggest something very uh, important. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of a mythology, and it's not only in Protestant churches. It's, it actually seems to have crept into Catholic uh, homilies. Mm -hmm. 
uh, an, uh, kind of overdoing it on this idea that the apostles were simple fishermen, that they, uh, you know, were just working men, probably illiterate and all the rest of it. But if you actually look at the writings of the great Jewish historian Josephus and some of the others, he specifically singles out Galilee, the northern part of Palestine where the apostles were from, uh, or most of them. Mm -hmm. He singles that out as being a rather cosmopolitan part of the Holy Land. Hmm. It was it was a crossroads of the world to the great ports of Phoenicia, which are on the uh, seashore, right. and uh, that Joppa, all, and the, right? And uh, 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 Josephus says that uh, all almost every Jewish boy in that area was put through a, a really good synagogue school, mm -hmm. and that the, and that they learned Greek there, and they learned some other things there also. So uh, the idea that now that's a whole other conception for most of us. Uh, that that we may have tried to bring a populism into it that uh, that doesn't really square. Uh, we're starting to learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things that uh, probably many, well we know for a fact the scriptures spell out explicitly that three of the apostles had been disciples of John the Baptist first. And you're connecting him to the Essenes. Right there, well, the Holy Spirit references. As well, well, also the fact that that John did all of his preaching in the same area where the Qumran scrolls were found. Right. I mean, it was all happening right there. It would take too long to go deeply into it right now. I go into more depth into the book and why there's good reason to think that John was some sort of former Essene or somebody who took the kernel of the Essene message and. Uh, well, you improved it. Right. It's interesting because you deal with that because this always bothered me like when our Lord goes to get baptized and there's John the ba John the Baptist who's his cousin at least in our mind we think he's his cousin. So you would think he certainly they would know each other didn't they grow up together right. but this helps give an explanation where maybe they didn't grow up together. Right. It, uh, uh, the Bible itself tells us that, that John uh, spent most of his life in the wilderness, right. it says. So uh, he was separated from the family and that's a good, that's pretty much what happened to the Essenes. They were kind of desert monks before there were Christian desert right. monks. And uh, they also had a terribly negative view of the Pharisees. They did. T they did, and how things were being done in the temple. And they called them a brood of vipers at one point. Yeah, that's we've a heard that. Yes, that's other. right. Yeah. So there's a lot of other things that suggest that uh, uh, that the that the apostles brought some pretty good formation into their relationship with mm -hmm. Jesus. After all. The scriptures tell us that John's, God's role for John the baptizer was to make straight the ways of the Lord, prepare his ways. And maybe that happened in a more literal way. Right. Many of the Essene teachings prefigure uh, Christianity right. right down to a sacrificial meal that could only be offered by a priest and, uh, and, and uh, texts about the coming day of judgment and, uh, uh, and uh, the world, a Savior who was coming to uh, free people from the power of the devil. All of these things were present in, they're present in the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, prior to the coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. So the idea that there had been a, a Christianity before Christ, so to speak, mm -hmm. that got the prefigurement. Yes, that got right. these men right up to the threshold, and then the man himself appeared. Right. Now going back to uh, the wedding feast of Cana, I thought there was interesting. You said the bulging guest list became a serious problem for Our Lady in the end. Our son Jesus, much given to hospitality. 
uh, a virtue enjoyed by his followers as well, and especially Paul, you say, appears to have gotten a bit carried away with his invite. The wine failed. And you think that's because he invited everybody and his brother? Right. And there were apparently a lot of disciples already. Keep okay. in mind, John had that's the scriptures and apostles. Yes, disciples. that's right. right. The scriptures tell us that uh, that John had a multitude of disciples, right. and after having heard their master identify Christ as the Lamb of God, it's and then John saying, "Now it's time for me to decrease. Mm -hmm. He, it's time for him to increase and me to decrease." The idea that a lot of that big throng of disciples followed Christ is uh, a very, uh, uh, very rational idea. Now you 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 talk about the deal with the fact Jesus' response to our to our lady when she asked about they don't have any wine, you know they uh, must have been more puzzling to even to the people around who said you know it's and for us today and I think that's true woman what concern is this to you and to me my hour has not yet come but you say rest assured any apparent tone of shortness or rudeness in our Lord's reply is an act accidental impression created by translating Greek from a form into English how so. Yeah, it, it seems to be, you know, if you and I were to call our mother's woman, it mm -hmm. would imply, uh, a, you know, a backing off or whatever. But no, it's a respectful term of, uh, uh, of honor at that point. But it does, uh, uh, it does uh, formalize, there is, it certainly is a note of formality in it. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is, we think, and the fathers back us up on this, rebuffing her a little bit. Mm -hmm. She's asking him to perform a miracle. She knows he can do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, she's asking him to do it, and he's going. You know that once this starts, we're on our on a quick track to the preconceived end. Right. And are you sure that this is the time to to do this? Mm -hmm. And he he you know, right. He he says as much that you say uh, knowing the word was sure to get out. Jesus realized very well that the miracle would become a sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, from then, from then, it was uh, uh, you know they were on the march. Maybe it was his kind of saying, "Are you ready for this?" Right. Exactly. For this to begin. Yeah. And there's a solemnity to the account that that suggests that, and the fact that that she, in a sense, uh, calls him. She gives another fiat, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. She says, "Yeah, let's get it on. Yeah, you right. know, let's get let it start. Right. You do know, whatever he tells. Let's do it. Let's right. let's set our face towards Jerusalem." So. Now, in the miracle menus, I thought this was interesting. You talk about Jesus would appear, gathered most of them up. He's talking about his disciples, showed them something uncanny and canid to retain their interest, and then left Galilee abruptly on an out-of-town trip. Yes, if you look at harmonies of the gospel, most harmonies of the gospel uh, say that there that it appears that the first thing that Jesus did after gathering the apostles together was to go south to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm about 90 miles south, so a pretty good journey in those days, and uh, make a visit to the holy city for purposes of his own, mm -hmm. and leave, left the apostles behind. They, they really get a second more permanent call a little later. And, uh, uh, and, and you actually allude to the fact that some of them kind of went back maybe even to what they were doing before, maybe even thinking, well, maybe he wasn't the guy. That's definitely suggested by the text. The uh, uh, the fact that we find them when Jesus comes back, he finds them have not they haven't left the family business. Mm -hmm. Right. So what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Uh, that's an interesting point. I used to used to try hard to puzzle this out, and uh, actually it's a bit of a moot point. In Matthew's gospel, well, okay, the word apostle is a term that's sometimes used in a more technical sense, but li just literally means someone who's called to a particular mission. 
Jesus himself refers to himself as an apostle. He says, as the Father apostled in Greek, as the Father apostled me, so I apostle you. In other words, he's telling his apostles, I'm sending you out on the same mission that I was sent out on. So uh, a disciple's a more general term, just somebody who's learning their master's doctrine. Right, right. So, uh, but the interesting thing is to get, uh, we get the 12 apostles as a term in the, in the Gospels, and we get the disciples as a term, but we also get the 12 disciples. Mm -hmm. Then later on in other parts of the New Testament, we get other men who don't seem even terribly important, um, don't seem to be amongst the top rank of apostles. Mm -hmm. We get them called apostles with a little a, as it were. Mm -hmm. What's, the point is the, the terms hadn't got set in stone yet at right. that early date. What a term that really is set in stone in the Gospels and becomes a coined phrase is dodeca, which is the twelve. Right. So that St. Matthew can talk about the twelve apostles, then a few verses later, the twelve disciples, right. and then back to apostles. You and see, back what to was design. the dramatic signal sent by this act of choosing twelve, the only twelve such legates? Simply put, the number itself represented a claim to messianic kingship. Amos, one of Israel's twelve prophets, by the way, had foreseen. Right, so yeah. 700 the, years before. We had 12 patriarchs, the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. We have 12 prophets in the uh, Greek Bible, and the, the, they're combined together into a book called the 12 Prophets. And, uh, you know, this is a very, very interesting thing. The priest who approached the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple wore a, uh, a special garment called an ephod and a breastplate, mm -hmm. and on that breastplate were 12 different stones and each of the stones represented one of the 12 tribes. Mm -hmm. And that particular breastplate was used by the high priest as a way of discerning God's will. Mm -hmm. There was a, a way in which they used it almost like a, uh, uh, well, it's not too different than what, uh, uh, you know, later on the apostles themselves cast lots right, at times to. to uh, right. Well, that breastplate was used to make important decisions and to invoke the 12. I think I say at one point mm -hmm. in the book that 12 is almost never a uh, coincidence in right. Scripture. Doesn't and seem to be. That link between some of the most important verses for understanding this, and if I were to talk to some of my old evangelical friends, I, this is the ones I'd center on the most. Jesus himself says in, at two different points that the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones in heaven mm -hmm. judging the 12 tribes of Israel and that their names will be written on the foundations of heaven, the New Jerusalem. That's a pretty powerful testimony to the fact that these men have a central role, had one, and will have one in eternity Ongoing. to come. Yeah. Right. One thing, in the chapter, The Obscurities of Parables, you talk about the idea of the discipline of the secret, and, and uh, Newman himself reached the conclusion that this ancient practice constituted nothing more or less than a pattern of those apostles learned from Jesus personally and then passed down to the church, meaning just like everything wasn't always explained to the uninitiated, the idea in the early church you had to be initiated before things were revealed. Yeah, people often ask, why did Jesus, why was he so deliberately obscure? Why, I mean, and deliberately. He tells us in so many words, I teach this way so that having heard, they won't understand. Because if they did, they might be converted. <laughs> very, very, very strange. Uh, you're getting a sense of the interior counsels of God at that point. But, but Jesus does begin by teaching in parables, not theology. Mm -hmm. It's because it's a different kind of learning. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the simplest shorthand I have for it is, well, Jesus himself says, don't cast your pearls before swine. That sounds harsh, but a good way of saying it is, why, why would you give a calculus book to a second grade arithmetic student? Mm -hmm. You're casting your pearls before swine. In other words, they have no use for it. Right. They'll use it to write comic books and stuff right, in, right. in margins, you know. They can't make any use of it. That's the parable of the pearls before swine. A pig it literally no won't use. have any function. That's for right. Them, right. So, and and that's good, just good teaching methodology. You you all teaching has to happen in order, and you can't give twelfth grade lessons to first grade students. Well, that's why you say here yeah. hardly any of the twelve, however, had ever heard Jesus cold, or if they had, they didn't remember it. That that's right. They having grown up in the family, they've been hearing about this cousin who was identified uh, to Mary by the, an angel as the, uh, as the coming Christ by the angel Gabriel. They'd also been hearing from John that this is the Lamb of God. Mm -hmm. And they've learned John's doctrine and now John hands them over to Jesus. So they've had some preparation right. before they ever, uh, the idea that Jesus, Jesus just walked up to the twelve cold right. and said, follow me. That's right. not what scripture really tells us. Right. Yeah. Well, you say here, I thought this was an important point in the closing minute here uh, in the, these 12 uh, in chapter 4 at the end, the disciples were being discipled for a reason. Unlike many religious founders, Jesus wrote nothing down at all. His message was in the men. He did not find it therein. He poured it in as he did. He modeled his own divine teaching methodology to the eventual imita in imitation to yeah, come. Yeah, that's it. He was making teachers, really. Right. He didn't write the New Testament. They did. And he didn't teach the world Jesus' doctrine, his doctrine. The, the apostles did it. And that was the reason that he chose them and the reason he trained him, them. Three years of intense training because he knew he wouldn't be there to do it himself. So these, these were the men, these were the uh, mission in a way, in order to, to get these men ready to be Christ, so to speak to the many millions of people who never, would never see him or hear him in person. Very good. These 12, the gospel through the apostles' eyes, Rod Bennett, always interesting. There's yeah. still much more to uh, get into, so you're going to have to pick the book up through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com. All things Catholic, I'm Doug Keck. Join us next time right here on Bookmark.